Episode 10. Dear Mrs. Roosevelt, The Real New Deal. Dear Mrs. Roosevelt is an epistolary song, employing a mode of address familiar to Americans ever since the then untested First Lady gained national recognition in the spring of 1933. The size of Eleanor Roosevelt's postbag was common knowledge, with literally millions of Americans during the Depression and the war years eager for her to intercede on their behalf. Children were known to be her keenest correspondents, but as an exhibition at the Hyde Park Presidential Museum and Library makes clear, in 1945, the newly widowed Mrs Roosevelt received condolences from a broad cross-section of the population, young and old, rich and poor, Democrats and Republicans. Again, this was widely known, and Guthrie was adding his voice to a rich and resilient narrative of bereavement. Like all Guthrie's compositions, Dear Mrs Roosevelt is firmly rooted in the American folk tradition, in this instance drawing heavily upon the ubiquitous African-American murder ballad Frankie and Johnny. Every folk and blues singer worth her or his salt has sung Frankie and Johnny. It's almost a rite of passage. Even Elvis recorded it as the title song of an execrable movie made at the lowest point in his career, round about the time Bob Dylan was recording Highway 61 Revisited. Dylan was singing Frankie and Jolly in Duluth, Greenwich Village and Soho at the start of the 60s and he was still seeking solace from it 30 years later. On the painfully honest Good As I've Been To You, he sang the more concise Frankie and Albert, first performed as far back as Hibbing in 1959. Over 30 years later, Dylan used an arrangement by Mississippi John Hurt of the version which Leadbelly had sung to John Lomax at Angola State Penitentiary in the summer of 1933. Champion Jack Dupree relocated the revenge story of Good Love Gone Bad to New Orleans for his rewrite ballad Rampart and Dumaine. A more authentic son of the Delta, Charlie Patton, enjoyed what, by the standards of the day, constituted a hit single when Paramount released his take on Frankie and Albert in 1929. The boost he bought on the back of this momentary success led to a lengthy spell in jail. Completing the circle, a creatively reborn Dylan included High Water for Charlie Patton, on the 2001 album Love and Theft, and in Chronicles named the Mississippi master of murder ballads as a lifelong influence. That same year, at a press conference in Rome, Dylan floated the idea of recording a whole album of Charlie Patton covers. Back in January 1968, he stayed with Frankie and Johnny, Frankie and Albert, when rearranging Dear Mrs Roosevelt, but added chord changes which some Dylan scholars consider a compositional approach unique to his work at the end of the 60s, as evident on Nashville Skylar and in particular Lay Lady Lay. As we've seen, Guthrie gave himself the voice of a mournful GI urging FDR's widow to temper her grief by appreciating that, as emphasised in the one-line chorus and the final verse, this world was lucky to see him born. In succeeding verses, Roosevelt was a child of privilege but doesn't take this for granted, being studious at school and Harvard and a born athlete. Outrun every kid a growing up around Hyde Park just for fun. Hence the cruel irony that he got struck down by fever and it settled in his leg. And then the double irony that the polio generated goodwill from the stricken patrician to all that wished him well, leaving him peculiarly well equipped to challenge the racketeers and profiteers. You money-changing boys have sure enough got to fall and corrupt politicians. He used his gift of tongue to get you thieves and liars told and put you on the run. Here was a president who deserved re-election because he fulfilled his promises and tried to find an honest job for every idle man. There then follows the key verse, differentiating the assumed anti-Labour Truman from his predecessor. He helped to build my union hall, he learned me how to talk, 
I could see he was a cripple, but he learned my soul to walk. This world was lucky to see him born. While during his presidency, Roosevelt's disability was the unspoken secret shared by all, with cameramen endeavouring to disguise the commander-in-chief's incapacity, in Guthrie's song it provides a focus and an explanation of the empathetic power that made this lost leader a true man of the people. At this point in Dylan's recorded performance, the song cuts to the penultimate verse, I was a GI in my army camp, before the backing musicians are left to up the tempo, led by Richard Manuel on honky-tonk piano. This allows a hollering Dylan due emphasis on the final and repeated assertion of how lucky this world was just to see him born. The song's rousing climax appears an unforced and natural conclusion to a simply structured and well-balanced composition, and yet the reality is that four verses have been omitted. The first verse seems innocuous, even when read as an assertion that unionised labour defeated a fascist threat at home as well as abroad. Were America's working men and women really fighting a war on two fronts? More contentious are the next two verses, portraying as they do a president prescient as to which allies share his respect for the ordinary Joe. At Yalta and Tehran, Roosevelt is seen as a sound judge of character, dismissing de Gaulle, Chiang Kai-shek and Guthrie's favourite bogeyman, Winston Churchill. An allied leader who, as a letter to Mo Ash from February 1945 made clear, he considered no different from the fascist dictators. In Guthrie's song, FDR has the guts to criticise the British Prime Minister man to man and the good sense to recognise the Grand Alliance's most dominant force. Shook hands with Joseph Stalin, says there's a man I like. If we dismiss the Yalta conference, when an ailing Roosevelt had only two months left to live, it's true to say the meeting in Tehran 15 months earlier saw Stalin and Roosevelt express mutual admiration at the expense of Churchill. As for de Gaulle and Chiang Kai-shek, Roosevelt saw the one as a dictator-in-waiting and the other as an expendable warlord. The final verse missing from Dylan's version of Dear Mrs Roosevelt sees Guthrie recall being torpedoed the day he took command which, if he meant the occasion of FDR's inauguration in either 1941 or 1945, was an obvious display of poetic licence. More to the point is that his captain hated a president loved by all ship's hands, not least because they were members of Guthrie's much-loved but much-maligned National Maritime Union. Before and during the war, the NMU was closely aligned with the Communist Party, even sharing officials. At the Union's Cleveland Convention in 1941, the Almanac singer's rousing version of Which Side Are You On had generated a level of audience participation beyond even Pete Seeger's wildest dreams. Over the next two years, Guthrie had been encouraged by the NMU to write numerous pro-Union, pro-Soviet songs of varying quality and to share his unique take on the war via the members' magazine, The Pilot. Joining the Merchant Marine meant that at least he could acquire a Union card. In New York, it was the NMU, not the shipping lines, who controlled the hiring of crew. Once at sea, he got himself elected as a union rep and was soon demanding better conditions for his shipmates. Throughout his time in the Merchant Navy, he gained immense pleasure from antagonising the officers, celebrating his successes in ships' newsletters and songs like Talking Sailor Blues. Yet by the time Guthrie came to write Dear Mrs Roosevelt, four years later, even the National Maritime Union had been neutralised. A leadership intent on purging the Union of any lingering connection with the Communist Party USA boycotted people's songs and worked hard to keep Woody at a distance. The irony of the January 1968 concerts is that, while no less than four verses were missing from Dear Mrs Roosevelt, 
Dylan found himself singing the full version of This Land Is Your Land when Pete Seeger and Arlo Guthrie brought all the performance back on stage for rousing renditions of Woody's most famous song. As became increasingly common across the ensuing decades, culminating in Seeger and Springsteen's pre-inauguration performance on 19th of January 2009, the lost verses of the Depression were included. Verse 4, on the big high wall there that tried to stop me, a sign was painted, said private property. And the deliberately shocking and unsentimental verse 6, one bright sunny morning in the shadow of the steeple, by the relief office I saw my people. As they stood hungry, I stood there wondering if this land was made for you and me. Seeger, increasingly uncomfortable with how America's alternative national anthem had become an innocuous feel-good song that anyone, of left or right, could embrace, reinstated the anti-capitalist verses in the mid-1960s, before adding a few of his own. Arlo Guthrie had been taught the full version by his father a decade earlier, when an already ailing Woody feared his songs might disappear or be emasculated once he was dead. The sanitised version was the one for which Richmond Limited, the publishing company of Guthrie admirer Howie Richmond, held the copyright. Richmond licensed Sing Out to publish the words and music in 1954 and published the sheet music two years later. The 1956 version of the song was subsequently authorised for replication in assorted anthologies and textbooks. As Robert Santelli explained in his excellent history of This Land Is Your Land, Howie Richmond and his son Jonathan were keen to promote the song as an anodyne popular patriotic chant. This was the version which American children grew up with in the 1950s and then heard in television commercials for airline travel a decade later. Bob Dylan's astonishing interpretation, sung before just 53 people at Carnegie Chapter Hall on the 4th of November 1961, was still not the definitive version, but it scarcely mattered. In a reflexive essay for the Times Literary Supplement in 2012, Neil Kikoran described Dylan's haunting delivery as something close to threnody and one of the most melancholy things he has ever done and one of the most exquisitely heartfelt performances. In other words, here is a lament on the state of the nation, both shocking and sad, by a prescient 20-year-old far wiser than his years and as such stubbornly resistant to the prevailing zeitgeist. If Dylan ever sang a strikingly downbeat version of This Land Is Your Land to Guthrie, the stricken hero must surely have approved. Nearly seven years later, on stage with Woody's old comrades for the grand finale, Dylan came into line. By 1968, this was as much Pete Seeger's song as Woody Guthrie's. Only with the soundtrack of Martin Scorsese's No Direction Home in 2005 did Bob Dylan's early seizure of the song become apparent to all. Howie Richmond could scarcely stop Seeger and Arlo Guthrie, along with the other performers, from singing all six verses of This Land Is Your Land, or veto the song appearing on Columbia's commemorative album when it finally appeared in 1972. By then, public performance, if not necessarily official recording, of the original song, with or without ad hoc further verses, was a fair complete. It's notable, however, that, unlike the 2019 box set, Columbia's first bootleg highlights of the Rolling Thunder Review did not include the ensemble's nightly grand finale. At the time of the album's release, early in the new century, did Jonathan Richmond withhold permission or were the royalties and licensing issues too complex? Today, Bob Dylan's official website does replicate in full Guthrie's original repost to God Bless America. In 1940, its working title was God Blessed America, challenging directly Berlin's patriotic prayer, updated two years before. 
In his history of the song, Robert Santelli implied that, had rambling Jack Elliot not been present, Dylan's entitlement to sing This Land Is Your Land would somehow have ceased. By the mid-70s, Dylan had moved so far away from his Guthrie roots as to be hardly recognisable. Nothing could be further from the truth, as Dylan has demonstrated time and again over succeeding decades. Santelli saw the baton as having been passed from Guthrie to Seeger to Springsteen, citing Nebraska and the ghost of Tom Joad as evidence. There is no place for Dylan in Santelli's narrative, which didn't make sense when his first book appeared in 2012, just as it didn't make sense at the time of the Rolling Thunder review, and it certainly made no sense at the time of Guthrie's death. As far as dear Mrs Roosevelt was concerned, Richmond's rebranded successor, T.R.O. Essex, remained sensitive regarding the full set of lyrics. Ten years into a new century, the manuscript of Will Kaufman's Woody Guthrie, American Radical, was generally well received when read by members of the Guthrie family. However, the music publisher refused Kaufman permission to quote Dear Mrs Roosevelt unless he removed the verse that claimed FDR had spurned de Gaulle and Chiang Kai-shek, but then shook hands with Joseph Stalin, says, There's a man I like. In his preface, Kaufman commented on the irony that, in the year 2010, a petty exercise in airbrushing, one of Stalin's own pet practices, should be demanded in order to prevent engagement with some of Guthrie's more inconvenient opinions. Why, back in January 1968, had this and the other contentious verses remained unsung? Had something similar occurred, with word reaching Howie Richmond that the forthcoming concert's most high-profile performer was, albeit unintentionally, about to besmirch Guthrie's reputation? Did Richmond feel the need to intervene? Did a still mentally fragile Bob Dylan engage in self-censorship, concluding that Cold War sentiment negated his singing a song in which the sainted Roosevelt was said to like Stalin as much as he disliked Churchill? At the height of the Tet Offensive in Vietnam, any such suggestion was ammunition for conservative critics of anti-war liberalism, of presumed communists like Seeger and the late Woody, and above all, of the protest singer-turned-rock star, still considered a symbol of purposeless generational discontent. Dylan was surely aware of this, and he was not the only one. Alarm bells would have rung for Pete Seeger, Mo Ash, and any other veteran of the Wallace campaign helping organise the concerts. In the absence of authoritative advice from Bob Dylan, one can only speculate. Needless to say, all attempts to approach him and Robbie Robertson have proved fruitless. When censoring the song, Dylan knew what he was doing. The 1963 compendium introduced by Pete Seeger contained the music for Dear Mrs Roosevelt and a full set of lyrics. This was, however, the only published source. As a collection edited and published by Harry Richmond two years later, at the height of the Berlin crisis, had omitted the song altogether. Presumably co-editor Pete Seeger preferred no Dear Mrs Roosevelt to a sanitised version. This was, after all, a very different song, in both quality and profile, from This Land Is Your Land, and pragmatism prevailed. Perhaps the same was true seven years later, with Dylan asking how a 15 minutes three song set could, or should, accommodate the faithful rendering of a song which hardly anyone in the audience was aware of. Dumping four verses with dated references enhanced the intensity of the performance, enabling the crackers to drive the song along to its six-voice crescendo. The intention was to excite the audience, not to test its patience. Was this, therefore, a case not of deliberate censorship, but of simple common sense? In other words, a combination of Dylan's natural caution and his sidemen's fear that taking too long to deliver a near-anonymous song would subvert the urgency and immediacy of a set deliberately intended to shock and surprise. No mystery or suspicion surrounds the better-known of only two other recordings of the song, the lesser-known being by Bob Collum, an Oklahoma musician now resident in South Essex. 
Dylan's performance was the template for San Diego folk singer Joel Raphael when recording Dear Mrs. Roosevelt. Raphael's version appeared on the album Would I, released in 2003 by Jackson Brown's independent label Inside Recordings, which describes itself as a haven for music that might not find a home in the mainstream. Would I was a collection of Guthrie songs, most of which were well known, plus Raphael's setting for the lyric Dance a Little Longer. Four more unpublished lyrics were set to music on Woody Boy, a second Guthrie covers album released two years after the first. Both recordings boast an impressive roster of Southern California musicians, including the likes of Van Dyke Parks, Jennifer Warnes and, not surprisingly, Jackson Brown. Joel Raphael is a veteran civil liberties campaigner with famous friends. He's an ever-present at the Woody Guthrie Folk Festival held in Okemar every year since 1998 on the nearest weekend of 14th of July, birthday of the town's most famous son. The festival, free for the first 17 years, attracts as headliners the likes of Steve Earle, Billy Bragg and Graham Nash, as well as Arlo Guthrie, with music complemented by plays, poetry readings and opportunities for radicals, young and old, to bemoan the state of the nation and recharge their political batteries. Whether on stage alone or alongside the cream of homegrown Americana, Joel Raphael is a mainstay of the festival. Would I was released the year Raphael toured with the ensemble show Ribbon of Highway, Endless Skyway, staged by Guthrie evangelist Jimmy Lafave, veteran Texan songwriter and co-organiser of the Okemar Festival until his death in 2017. Raphael's setlist may have changed many times since he recorded Dear Mrs Roosevelt, but the songs rarely if ever formed part of his repertoire. He has confirmed that when compiling his first tribute album, he simply copied the Dylan version. Only later did Raphael acquire the nearly complete collection of Woody Guthrie songs, at which point it became apparent that unintentionally he had broken his own strict rule of always singing every lyric, however contentious. <laughs> 